listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for October 2017. Today's episode is titled Competition. How do you respond when you hear the word competition? For many, the mention of competition conjures up thoughts such as enemy, kill, and destroy. The reason for this is that competition is widely viewed as an opponent that potentially disrupts one's agenda for making money. And for most of us, making money is the predicate for fulfilling the American dream. Guard your heart from the sin of mammon worship. Disdaining competition is an indicator of mammon worship. The opposite of mammon worship is the worship of God expressed in the principle of stewardship. Management must model and teach stewardship to all stakeholders. When this view takes hold in the organization, competition is valued because it challenges the organization to be more effective, efficient, and creative. Competition makes organizations better and serves the interests of the customers and clients. Also, competition facilitates mutual learning. Therefore, put aside mammon worship with its narcissistic, hedonistic greed. Seek to serve God's purpose through your organization by competing well. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Competition. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the book of James. And our text will be James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you for the depth of truth that's in your word. Give us grace to go deeper today, deeper into this truth, to see it as you would have us see it, and may it transform us to bring us into better alignment with you. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4 is a very uh, daunting text. It's a scary text because it's uh, giving us some truth here that most of us don't want to face. I've titled this topic, The Enemies of God, and I want to point out that that this is not referencing to, to Satan and his minions and those that are joining the rebellion against God. It's talking about we who profess Christ and how we serve as enemies of God, and sometimes very unwittingly, and sometimes we're not aware that we're doing these things. So let me just read this text to you, and then we'll make some introductory comments before we get into the exegesis. James 4, 1 through 4, this is the English Standard Version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Uh, That is a rhetorical question, and a rhetorical question inherently has an implied answer, and the implied answer here is yes, this is what's going on. He goes on to say, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know? that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, those who wish to be a friend of the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. Now, wow, most of us, we say, well, wait a minute, I don't wish to be a friend of the world because I don't want to be an enemy of God. Well, if we're brutally honest, we probably have all done that. Well, let's jump into some introductory comments before we uh, we unpack this for you. 
First of all, just a reminder of the background. Uh, this was probably one of the earliest epistles in the first century. James is trying to help the Jewish people who are scattered outside. They're, they're living outside of Jerusalem. Uh, but many of them probably participated in Pentecost, but they're living in various parts of the, of the, of, uh, the Asia and uh, Europe. Um, we don't know all the places they're living. We just know that they are dispersed. And of course, Judaish, Jew, Jewish people were dispersed because of sin. It was God's judgment on their rejection of Him. God does respond even to His chosen people. He responds when they reject Him, He will reject you. That is part of the principle of reciprocity. That's one of the principles of the kingdom of God. Many Christians think, well, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm not under judgment. Well, ultimately you're not under, but there can be judgment here and now if you fail to properly engage and obey God as you should. So these early believers were dispersed throughout the known world, and James is trying to help them understand what Scripture, which to them was the Old Testament, what that meant in light of Christ, and specifically what it meant to live under the Lordship of Christ. So the purpose of the book is really to, I think, to unpack the three tenses of salvation with a special emphasis on the present tense of salvation. Now, he only mentions the, uh, the, the past tense and the future tense a couple of times. For example, in James 1.18, he mentions the past tense. He says this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures which says that God sovereignly regenerates us. That is a sovereign work of God. We have nothing to do with it. That's when we we are actually regenerated. So now we are delivered from the, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is death, and not only physical death, but ultimate death. And so we're delivered from that ultimate death. And that happens through the sovereign work of God. That's the past tense. The present tense it really has to do with sanctification. Going on in, in chapter 1, verse 21, a few verses after he mentions the past tense of salvation, he mentions the present tense, which is going to be the theme of his book. He therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And see, this is where you have to recognize, he's saying now there's a present tense aspect of salvation. We speak today about salvation like it's just all done in the past. No, salvation has three tenses. There's a past tense aspect, a present tense aspect, and a future tense aspect. The past tense aspect is deliverance from the penalty of sin. The present tense aspect is a deliverance from the the power of sin. And now the future tense aspect is a deliverance from the very presence of sin. So... He mentions that and alludes to that at the future tense aspect in James chapter 5, verse 7. So it's important that you understand this. It's important you get that he is largely focusing on, on sanctification. The, the present tense and the past tense aspect of sin are sovereign works of God. We have nothing to do with them. We simply receive benefits from that work on our behalf. The present tense, we have a responsibility. Uh, some theologian called this our responsibility to cooperate with the Spirit to, af- to affect the work of transformation in our lives. We have to be active. 
We're not passive. You know, we renewing of our minds that Paul talks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2 is an active thing. James is a whole book of actions, things we are to do, responsibilities that we have to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. The audience, as I mentioned before, was first century A.D. Jewish Christians who were probably synagogue trained. So they were very knowledgeable in the Old Testament, and therefore James did not have to explain theology to them. He knew they knew that theology. They were trained through the synagogue system that which rose up during the dispersion when the Jewish people were no longer focused on Israel and the promised land. They were dispersed. And so how do you keep the Jewish people connected with their their roots? You have to have a, a system, a training system, and the synagogue system became that. The style of the book, it's many regarded as a homily. A homily is a series of lessons that seemingly don't connect. Now, the more I've studied the James, the less I'm inclined to believe it's really a homily. Uh, I recognize that there is a, a parallel between the Old Testament book of Proverbs and the book of James. There's a lot of pithy sayings in here, is that just as there was in the book and is in the book of Proverbs. But I think James has a connected theme. And that theme is not, I, I haven't found in reading the commentators I've read, I haven't found really much recognition of this. But I think the theme is really all about sanctification. Everything in this book ties to sanctification. And there are a lot of sub-themes that go into this. For example, metaphysical awareness, big theme. First, first theme right out of the box, metaphysical awareness of how to do, view pain and suffering, what God is doing through pain and suffering. Then you have prayer. You've got to have metaphysical awareness of prayer and recognize that you've got to learn how to pray and pray well. When I was listening to a teaching this week, and the, the teacher was making the comment about, about prayer that the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to heal people or teach them how to cast out demons or you know, teach them how to you know, disciple others. I, I, clearly, Jesus did that. But the disciples did specifically ask for Jesus to teach them to pray. And his point was this, that that most professing Christians that he had run into had never been taught to pray. So they pray to God just like they're having a private conversation with God, generally telling God what they want God to do for them. That's how most people pray. Well, we need to be taught biblically aligned prayers. Some of you may have seen my gleanings for December, if you did. It's, it's, if you haven't, I encourage you to look at it. It's really all about praying prayers that God will answer. What does that look like? Well, I think we all need to learn how to pray those prayers. And I, we have to be taught to pray those prayers because we doesn't come to us naturally. You know, what doesn't come to you naturally, you have to be taught. And so I think that's the point here is we're being taught in this book all kinds of aspects of sanctification. Prayer is one of them. How to steward money. That's another one. The use of the tongue. How spiritual reality drives physical reality. The exclusivity of Christ. And that is a big one in our culture today because we have a world, a world that's being built around us, an artificial world of unreality that we're being forced to live in that is trying to exclude Christ. And we're saying Christ cannot be excluded, but he is the exclusive way to get to God. He is the exclusive solution to the, the problems of life. And so he's alluding to that. He also talks about true wisdom versus false wisdom. He talks about narcissism and hedonism, which we're going to talk about today, and humility and strategic planning and patience and truth. 
All of these themes all connect back to sanctification. That, to me, is the overarching theme of this book, is growing and maturing and being sanctified in Christ. And I think you can conclude that if you're not doing that, if you're not engaged in being sanctified, there's no spiritual reason, no physical or spiritual evidence, and therefore no reason to believe that you truly know Christ. And that is a very challenging statement. I know many people really bristle with that. But if you look at James carefully, I think you will see that's one of the things he's trying to say. In the course of how he designed his book, he built it around about 60 imperatives. And many of these imperatives are uh, are repetitious. Uh, So I've tried to synthesize these uh, based on sections of the teaching. And I've come up with about 20 to 25 commands. And these are important. And the reason they're important is because we generally don't understand commands today because we misunderstand grace. And we've, we've assumed that grace means we don't have to do anything. Well, we're saved by grace through faith. That refers to the past tense aspect of salvation. And we will be saved. That refers to the future tense aspect. But the present tense aspect of salvation, we have a responsibility. We, therefore, have things we must do. And so when Jesus told his his 11 on top of that mountain right before he left, and he gave them the discipleship mandate, he told them to go to all the world, all the ethnic groups, and to disciple nations, not evangelize, not make converts to evangelize. He told them to disciple. And And when you disciple, you do two key things. One is you recognize who the Holy Spirit's regenerated, and you do that by baptism. Baptism is an acknowledgement that we believe we've seen signs of regeneration in you, and so we're acknowledging that. And then you train them to obey the commands of Christ. Those are the two aspects of discipleship. Recognize who God saved, and then begin to train them to obey the commands of Christ. So commandments are important. If you think grace you know, exempts you from obeying the commands of God, you don't understand what Scripture is saying. So this book is built around a, a number of commands, imperatives. And in the Greek language, the imperative mood is reflected in the grammar. In English, the imperative mood is reflected in the inflection of the voice. So it's different. But in Greek, you could put it very explicitly in the grammar. And then finally, we have an immediate context. The prior context of James' discussion has been the true wisdom and false wisdom. There are a number of commentators that question uh, breaking the chapters the way they have between chapter 3 and 4. Because chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, dealing with the true wisdom for false wisdom, seems to connect very smoothly with chapter 4, where now he's going to talk about, you know, what it is to, you know, some examples of how false wisdom is ministering to us today. We don't think of false wisdom ministering to us, but that it does. You know, ministry, uh, it's another one of those things we've distorted in Christianity. The word for the original word in the Greek language, uh, diakonia, means to execute the commands of another. That's literally what ministry is. And so basically we could have false doctrine, you know, executing the commands of Satan in our lives. You say diakonia is not a religious term. And it can be used both for good and for evil. So we want diakonia that's used for good. That is for alignment with God. 
All right, going on to chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the exegetical points in the text. And the first thing I want to want to note to you is this word for passion here. He says here, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, this could be, you know, not only literal fights, but it can be just, uh, you know, non it could be nonverbal uh, fighting or verbal fighting or physical fighting. There are several levels you can fight and quarrel with people about. Okay, and he's saying, where's what's the root of this? What causes this? Well, fighting is, tends to be a, a physical reality, but it's rooted in spiritual reality, because spiritual reality always drives physical reality. Spiritual reality, good spiritual reality drives good results. Bad spiritual reality bad, drives bad results. So in this case, it's bad spiritual reality, and he uses now this uh, uh, this this question. Uh, rhetorical question here, is it not this, that your passions, and that word is hedone, and we get the word hedonism from that, hedone, are these not hedone, are you not a hedonist basically, are there not these hedonistic passions at war within you? In other words, there's a spiritual reality at war within you, in your heart, the seed of your mind and will and your emotions, that's rebelling against God. And it's manifested now by all this conflict. Conflict is always the sign of rebellion in the heart. Now, I realize that there can be, an, there is licit conflict, and there's only one licit conflict, and that is when we are fighting the forces of evil who oppose God. That is licit conflict. Every other conflict is illicit. It is out of bounds. It's rooted in the sin of man. It's rooted in bad spiritual reality in man that God wants to redeem. So he's trying to get very clear at the beginning. You need to understand why you're, why you don't have peace. You know, the prior verse, chapter three, verse 18 ends with blessings on those who, who live in peace and who make peace. Well, the only people who are going to make peace are people that have peace with God. If you don't have peace with God, you don't know Christ. You're going to be living in turmoil because you got bad spiritual reality in you, and it's going to manifest in your lifestyle. He goes on to illustrate this further by saying, you desire. This word desire here means covet. And you remember the Tenth Commandment was, you shall not covet. So he's telling these Jewish people, as soon as they hear the word covet, they're thinking about that Tenth Commandment. You and I don't think that way because we're not, we're not as well trained as the audience that James is writing to was. So you desire and do not have. So you murder. Again, that's the and and probably a more of a metaphor than literally that you know, you can murder people by your tongue. You can murder people by excluding them, by speaking ill of them, by you know, by treating them poorly. There's all kinds of ways that you can murder people. It's, murder is is taking life out of people. That's what murder is. So when you are taking life out of people, you are you are opposing the purpose of God in their life because he is all about life. He says you do not have because you do not ask. That's very interesting. You know, God does require us to ask. You know, that, again, is a point of prayer. We're not used to asking. Basically, we think if we can figure it out ourselves, we don't need God. And yet Paul says in Galatians, or Colossians chapter 4 that one of the marks of a true follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, is that they are devoted to prayer. Devoted. It becomes a passionate part of their life, a lifestyle of prayer. 
And Paul even says later that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. See, so we we got plenty of scripture telling us about the importance of prayer, and yet we don't we don't pray. So he says, you desire, you covet, don't have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain by this word by the word this word covet here is a word for it's zaleo, which we get the word zeal from, and it mean it implies burning with zeal, in this case illicit zeal. So you have this illicit zeal for something, most likely money, power, fortune, you know, influence, standing or something, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel again. Again, bad spiritual reality. Coveting in your heart is bad spiritual reality. It manifests in how you live. You do not have because you do not ask. That's a general principle. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your hedonistic passions. So what he's saying here is he's given us two examples of how God responds to, to situations relative to prayer. In one case, they don't pray. In the other case, they do pray, but they have the wrong motives. Motives are important to God. You can't just pray anything. God answers prayers. When we ask, he's a loving father. He gives us what we really need. But when we ask for things we don't really need, which means we're asking out of our own fleshly desires, then he's not going to respond to that. So you have to ask, but you have to also ask with the right motive. So we got to be very clear on that. And now he gets really, really ugly, really ugly. When you start thinking about spend it on your own passions, you know, most people really bristle with that. Because most of us, if we're brutally honest, we use our money for ourselves to do what we want to do, to do our will according to our ways. If we're brutally honest about it, we may not want to admit that. I mean, we are Christians, and we want to be accepted as Christians and apply our polite Christian uh, ghettos, as Dennis calls them. But the reality is we live like hedonists. We live like people who worship pleasure. I remember doing a teaching one time about money, and I made the point about how, you know, all that we earn is God's. We're simply as stewards. And there was a man in the back of the room who had been in the construction business for some 30 years. He built homes, and he was very upset with that. He considered himself a very strong Christian, gave a lot of money to works of the Lord, as he put them. And he felt like, once I give my tithe and my offerings, then I figure the rest of it's mine. You know, it's my reward for being a faithful, you know, Faithful, godly person and working hard. It's my reward. I said, I'm sorry. It's all God's. It's not yours. Show me the scripture where it's yours. And he was really angry with that. He's very upset at that comment. But the reality is when you are spending anything outside the will of God, you are a hedonist. Yeah, you got to let that sink in. You're a hedonist. And now James is going to get even nastier. He says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. An adulterous person is someone who's betrayed a covenant partner. That is what adultery is. You're betraying a covenant partner. If you've come to know Christ, you've entered into the covenant of grace. And now if you don't live as a believer, then you are betraying that covenant of grace. You are an adulteress. And literally, this is interesting. He uses the feminine gender here, which means adulteress not adulterer. So the picture is 
like God is the man and, and the church, the body of Christ is the female. And we see that picture in other texts of scripture. And when we don't live faithfully as that betrothed wife in the covenant, submitting to the will and ways of the husband, then we are hedonist. We're adulteresses. Okay, then he expands on that, says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity against God? Now, friendship here is the word philia. We get the word Philadelphia from that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's basically, it's not the same level of love as eros, which is sexual love, or agape, which is sacrificial living. Philia is about being a, a friend. Now, a friend in the first century is someone that you had unity with, spiritual and natural. You shared everything with this friend. That's how, that's how these things work in that century. So undoubtedly he is really appealing to their understanding of what that meant. For us, it's kind of a, a lighter idea. But certainly for them, it was a very, very profound idea. And so as, as you move into an understanding of, of what this is, you recognize that being a friend with the world can be nothing else but an enemy of God. It's totally counter to God. Wow. This word world here is the word cosmo, which refers to the world system. So one of the ways you know that you're an enemy of God is when you adapt worldly metrics for anything. And we saw this, uh, if, for example, um, if you look at, um, excuse me, I'm having to, going to have to stop this. My, I was showing this on Periscope, and I just got disrupted, and there's nothing I can do to fix it while I'm teaching you. So I've got to continue on. So this, uh, this word for world here, cosmos, refers to the world system. That refers to the world's metrics, the world's way of training and thinking about things. So anytime that we, uh, we adopt worldly thinking, we have become an enemy of God. Now that is profound. Very profound. When you begin to recognize this and you realize that virtually everything that we measure today, we, we get from the world. You know, how we measure success, significance, how we measure, uh, you know, security. These things are mostly worldly metrics. And so anytime we are adopting those metrics, we are opposing God. Therefore, whoever wishes, and this word wish here means deliberately wills, which implies you're rebelling against God, to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, this is really strong language that James is using here to tell his his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot live a lifestyle based on worldly thinking, worldly metrics. So one common way that we do that today in the workplace, for example, is we embrace a concept called best practices. Now, that's a concept the world has adopted, and they basically get best practices by looking around at organizations that produce the fruit or the results that they want, and they uh, they decide, okay, uh, what are they doing to get that fruit? Well, let's, let's identify that principle or that practice and let's call that now a best practice, and we extol that. So you need to go do what they do, and you'll get the fruit that they get. And generally the fruit is has to do with money or growth, you know, or reputation, things of that nature. 
And if it, if that's all it is, then you've probably adopted a worldly metric. So the, the best thing to do when you see something like that, like best practices, is take those best practices to the word and filter them through the word. Some of them will probably pass through and be you'll find biblical support for them, in which case they're biblical best practices. There are others you're going to say, nah, nah, security's not money. So if you think security's money, wrong. That's not what Scripture says. So you kick that one out. So when you filter them correctly, you wind up with biblical best practices, and that means that you're now living as a friend of God. If you don't do that, if you live based on worldly best practices, you're living as an enemy of God. And I think he's trying to say here through this, there's no reason to believe that you even know the Lord. He doesn't explicitly say that, but just the the tone and the strength of his words are such that it certainly implies that. So this is a this is a very strong text. One other point here on the exegesis is most of the verbs here are in the present tense in the Greek. And the present tense in Greek means continuous action. Continuous action. So this is a lifestyle, a continuous state in which these people are living like this. Conflict and buying into worldly thinking, living opposed to God while, uh, while professing to know God. Sometimes I wonder, you know, how much of that is in me? How much have I really, in deception, thinking I'm walking with God, but I'm really walking in worldly metrics, which means I'm an enemy of God? How much of that's going on? I've got a little exercise here for you uh, at the end to help you kind of think about that. And this is not about being being condemned. This is about being sobered into reality. There's a difference between condemnation and, and reality. Reality is where God is. Condemnation is where the enemy wants you to get, so then you get discouraged and you give up. God wants you to get convicted, so you change. So that's the challenge. We want to come under conviction and change. Well, let me just give you some theological points here, some of which I've already made, but just want to reinforce these. First, spiritual reality drives physical reality. Your belief in God, your theology, what you believe to be true, what's at the core of your your mind, your will, and your emotions, which are metaphorically, you know, it's called what's in your heart. Whatever is there will manifest in how you live. What you say, the choices you make, and the things you do, how you treat people. All of these things will be manifest. Spiritual reality always is revealed in physical reality. Secondly, serving personal pleasure is narcissistic and deceptive. Another theme of this book is deception. I haven't talked a lot about that, but you can go through this book and make a list of of the deceptions that he's talking about, some of which he's very explicit. For example, when you are a hearer of the word and not a doer, you are self-deceived. He explicitly says that. Other times, he, he is implicit about it. You know, for example, <clears throat> he might when he talks about but separating faith from words, like people think you can separate what you believe from what you do, you know, that's deception. You can't do that. But that, that's more of an implied idea. He doesn't really call it deception, but he certainly implies it. So he uses both explicit and implicit uh, ways to communicate deception. And you can go through every section in this book and you find examples of deception. 
Living for yourself is deception. Living in pride is deception. Living for self-directed is deception. Measuring success by temporal wealth is deception. On and on and on. So deception is a big, big theme of the book. And anytime we serve our personal pleasures, we are narcissistic, hedonistic, and we are deceived. I mentioned to you the gospel has three tenses, and this book is largely about sanctification, which is the present tense aspect where we are being continually delivered from the power of sin in our lives. And finally, prayer. This text has a lot to do about with prayer because God responds to prayer. And I'm going to show you a little chart here of how you can kind of see this. This is a chart that's looking at prayer. You either pray or you don't pray. And it's also looking at motives. You either have the right motive or the wrong motive. So you can see, for example, in the first quadrant, upper left-hand quadrant, uh, if you don't pray and you have the wrong motive, you're not going to receive, period. Now, the next quadrant is the upper right-hand quadrant. You don't ask, but you have the right motive. You're not going to receive. Then the lower left-hand quadrant is you ask, but you have the wrong motive. You don't receive. Hopefully you immediately recognize that the two, the left hand, left upper right and left lower, the left uh, upper and the left lower, uh, both of these are mentioned in James chapter 1, 4, verses 1 through 4. You know, whether you don't ask or whether you ask with the wrong motive, these don't get answered. So what gets answered? When you ask with the right motives. That's what gets answered. Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That is true, but it's only true when you're asking with the right motive. And so when we begin to recognize that God does answer prayers, he expects us to pray in faith and pray with the right motives and to ask. So this is how you properly pray. Now let me go on to some application here real quickly. Um, this is a text about conflict. Conflict rooted in the desire to do our will according to our ways, which is living independent of God, is illicit and makes us enemies of God. Even when we profess Christ, we are enemies of God if this is what's going on in us. The only valid conflict is warfare against anything that opposes the will and ways of God. That's the only valid conflict. Every other conflict is illicit. It's out of bounds. So it's important that we recognize this is the command of the text. The command now is to recognize that conflict rooted in a desire to do our will and our ways is illicit and makes us an enemy of God. So basically the command is don't do that. You know, don't, don't try to assert your will and your ways. It's not about you. It is, when you have conflict, you ought to immediately ask, what's the source of this? There's only one genuine, true basis for this conflict that would be honoring to God, and that is I'm fighting his battle. If I'm not fighting his battle, I'm fighting against him. And that conflict is illicit. So that's a big, the big imperative here to me in this text is learning to recognize the one true conflict that we should have and every other conflict is out of bounds. 
And also I want to talk a little bit about workplace competition. Uh, I remember sharing this text one time with someone. I said, do you recognize that this text has a lot to say about competition? And the person looked at it. They looked at the text. They came back to me a little later and said, I read that text, and I couldn't see that. Well, well, let's think about what competition is. Competition, for most people, is war. You're fighting a battle. You're competing with someone, like this little picture I've got here of the two people in an arm wrestling contest. It's fighting a battle, and one's going to win, and one's going to lose. So I experienced the reality of competition working in the family business, and one time had a real big challenge in my hand that caused me to really think about, you know, competition in a different way. We had reached the point in developing the business where we wanted to um, really train our technicians, particularly our air conditioning technicians, uh, to another level. Air conditioning equipment was becoming more complicated. This was back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they were introducing computers in air conditioning equipment. I know today all air conditioning equipment has computers, but back then they didn't. They were just beginning to put circuit boards in and doing fancy things with this equipment, and I knew our guys, they needed more training uh, because it was just getting more complicated. So we developed a program. We sent them through a series of trainings, and this required a lot of time. And it required money. Not only did we pay them to, uh, to pay their fees to go to training and pay their rooming and their room expense and their, their food expense and transportation expense, all of that to go to the training, we paid them their salary uh, while they're gone so their families would be supported. So it was a lot of investment. At one point, I think I calculated it was something like twenty or $30,000 per person to get them trained through all of the, the training we had identified. So... Back in the, back in the 30 years ago, that was a lot of money per person. So we trained them and then they would come back and of course we, we got a lot better technician and we could do a better job for our customers. But soon we noticed that some of the technicians were quitting and they were going to work for other companies or going in business for themselves. And so I'm saying, what's going on here? So we wound up in a, 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 the management team wound up in a conversation about this. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond to this? And some of the some of the managers said we, we need to put them under a contract, you know. So if they quit before five years, they have to pay back pro rata some share of that cost, you know. So so basically, you got a you got golden handcuffs on them, you know. It's you know it's going to be hard for them to leave. They're going to it's going to cost them something to leave. So I pondered that for a while, and prayed over that, and finally it came to me that that was not the right way to do it. I realized, you know, this is not about us. What we do when we train these people, we have a better technician. The customers are blessed. And therefore, we as a company are blessed because customers are happier with us. we got a better reputation. And we, we deliver better products and services. We make more money. The, we can pay more money to the technicians. That's a wonderful thing. And if they quit... Even though it may look like it's a little penalty us, still the industry is better off. And wherever they go, they take their training with them and they serve better than if they had not been trained. And so from the standpoint of the, the bigger, the, the bigger picture, uh, it's better for our competition to have trained technicians because then they can serve their customers better. It's better for the customers that all the technicians be trained. Everybody wins. 
we have to sacrifice a little bit potentially by losing those trained technicians because we made the investment to train them. But I realized that's just part of the price. That's what you do. And so when I came to that and shared that with the management team, it was a very foreign idea to them. They never thought about thinking about the good of the whole, thinking about, you know, helping our customers, helping our competition improve. I mean, nobody was into that. We're going to kill the competition. We're not into helping the competition. And so basically, finally, they all agreed that, okay, you know, I don't think they ever fully agreed, but they capitulated. Since I was the president, I had the last voice. I said, well, this is what we're going to do, guys. I hope you can see it. And what happened was the good tech, the runs, the best technicians tended to stay with us. The ones that left many times were ones that we were struggling with a bit. And some of them even came back later. But it didn't matter because whether they went to work for someone else or would work for themselves, the industry, the customers, everyone won. Everyone was in a better place. So this is where you begin to think big picture, long term. This is how God thinks. Conflict, ungodly conflict is out of order. Selfish conflict. And we were being very selfish to try to hold on to these guys for ourselves, for our own ability to make money. And when we sacrificed that and went for the good of the whole, God's perspective, then everybody wins. So that's a simple example of how to use this text to help us think more profoundly about competition. Now, finally, I have a, a narcissism and hedonism detector or an enemy of God indicator. Now, this is just something as I've kind of thinking about this, how would I detect this in me? So I put together things that, that I'm very susceptible to and things that I've seen in other people. So um, this is 10 little statements here. And again, you rate your level of agreement with these statements, where zero is totally disagree and 10 is totally agree. So I'm just going to read these to you and let you score yourself, and uh, then we'll conclude. All right, the first statement is, work is about making money so that I can live the American dream. So, zero to ten, score yourself. After I tithe to God, I can make money as I wish. Or, excuse me, I can use my money as I wish. After I tithe, I can use my money as I wish. Maximizing profit on every sale is my main objective in business. The main purpose of business is to make money to support kingdom work. Business is like war. It is survival of the fittest. I take no prisoners. I want to make as much money as fast as I can so I can retire as soon as I can. Money is the best measure of success in business. Making money gives you the resources to become significant. God does not care about how I spend my money. He only cares about my soul. Anything that I can do to eliminate competition is fair game. So score yourselves, and we will talk about that in just a moment. Well, hopefully this has given you a a picture now of... uh, a challenging picture of the level of narcissism and hedonism that may be at work in you. I know it's certainly at work in me, 
and it's very convicting as I've studied this text and and worked on it. I've got uh, I've developed uh, I don't know probably eight or ten pages of notes associated with just this text here as I've wrestled with it and read the commentators and, and worked through the Greek language and just just trying to understand what James is saying. It's a very very challenging truth here, but it's it's life giving truth. If we can get this in us, it changes our theology then we will have more sound theology and therefore we will have a more sound life and more fruit that brings glory to God. So may that be our portion in Jesus' name. Amen.